I just welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. Also, I want to thank Brian and Terry. Brian and Terry Farno are two people who were here this morning. They were the two singing and leading us in worship. So let's give them a round of applause. They did a really, really good job. So thank you to both of them. They did a really great job, and we're glad that you guys could join us this morning. So before we actually get into our sermon, I want to briefly draw your attention to something that Joshua already mentioned in the welcome, and that is the outreach event we're doing with the Fishers Freedom Festival. Now, Joshua already mentioned the whole gist of the thing. It's a kids game booth that's happening on June 29th. We need people to come and basically run this booth and let kids play these games and give out some postcards about our church, that kind of thing. We just want to be good members of the community. We want to use this opportunity to meet people in our community and show them the love of Christ by having their kids just play a simple game that's free and getting a prize and having fun. Now, as Joshua mentioned, we have that sign-up sheet in the lobby for people signing up for shifts to run this booth from 9 to 11, 11 to 1, and from 1 to 3. Now, if you look at the date, it is June 29th. Today is June 8th. That means that this is happening on a Sunday morning. Now, there may be some of you, some of you who are thinking, now, wait a minute, how am I supposed to volunteer at this kids' game booth when this is the time that we have church? That means I'm going to miss church. That means our attendance is going to be down. And our response to that would be, you know, we're okay with that. If our attendance goes down a little bit for one week because people in our church are out serving in the community and showing the love of Christ to people, then we can live with that. That's worth it. We also hope that by doing this kids game booth on a Sunday morning, that those people that we are serving, those people that we are meeting, they might be just a little bit more likely likely to not know Christ, and they might be a little bit more likely to not have a church home. So that's why we're doing it on a Sunday morning. It's okay if you miss because you're volunteering. We're not going to hold that against you. That's a great reason to miss church. So if you want to sign up for that, please do that. Very simple, very easy, two-hour chunks. It's not too much time, so we hope that you'll sign up for that as we go out and try to fulfill that thing we talk about in our vision, loving our neighbors. That one day, as we build credibility as a church, as people know that we care about them, as people know that we love them, that that might open doors to share Christ or share the gospel with them. So we hope you'll volunteer for that. Now, we're in a new sermon series going through the Ten Commandments. We're in week two of this Ten Commandments series. And like we talked about last week, the Ten Commandments often get a bad rap. And there's different reasons for why that may be the case. Some people hear the Ten Commandments and all they think about are courtroom controversies about whether or not they should be displayed. They hear the Ten Commandments and they think about Christians who seem obsessed with just enforcing their morals upon everybody else, even though they may not be Christians. And then we also maybe get a bad rap for the Ten Commandments because Christian or non-Christian alike, we view them as nothing more than a list of rules. And whether we know Christ or not, we have this natural tendency to try and push back when we have rules given to us. We like rebelling. We like bending the rules. We like breaking the rules. And we live in a society that says, you know what? You live your life. You do what you want to do, and I'll live mine. Don't tell me how to live my life. It's not your business. I submit to what I think is right. And so we hear the Ten Commandments and we immediately put up some defenses 
against them because we don't like rules. But as we talked about last week, and the message that I hope you will get throughout this entire sermon series is this, the Ten Commandments are not just a list of rules. They're not just a list of morals that we somehow try and fulfill as best as we can. That way we can stay on God's good side. That is not what the Ten Commandments are about. The biggest thing about the Ten Commandments is that they show us a little bit about God. They tell us a little bit about who this God is that we worship. And that's why we read them. That's why we study them. And that's why we're looking at them for the next few weeks. We also talked about that long background, that long crazy road that brings us to Exodus chapter 20 in the Bible. God in his grace calls Abraham, this guy who's going on about his business, nothing special about him, nothing unique about him. But God calls him and says, Abraham, follow me. And Abraham says, well, okay, God, if you say so, God promises that Abraham will have tons of descendants that will outnumber the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky, even though Abraham and his wife are not exactly in a childbearing age anymore. But sure enough, Isaac is born just like God said he would be. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a son named Joseph. And Joseph's life, we talked about, is a crazy Crazy roller coaster of ups and downs. There are moments of success. There are moments of failure. There are moments of betrayal. There are moments of reconciliation. And before it's all said and done, Joseph ends up being one of the most influential leaders in Egypt. God's people, his family, they come to Egypt with Joseph and they're doing pretty well. They're in good standing with the Egyptians, even though this is not where they're originally from, even though this is not their homeland. But that wouldn't last forever. Joseph dies, new Egyptian leadership rises up, and they feel a little bit threatened by these foreigners, and so they put them under oppression. They put them under bondage, and God's people cry out to him that they might be freed, that God will remember the promise he made to Abraham, because it sure doesn't look like that promise is really bearing fruit if they're slaves in Egypt. But God hears their cry. He appoints a man named Moses to lead them out of Egypt, and just like Joseph, Moses' life is a crazy roller coaster as well. But sure enough, Moses is the guy for the job. God appoints Moses, God helps Moses, and Moses leads these people out of slavery. He leads them across the Red Sea. But then, what comes next? They finally have their freedom. They're no longer under bondage, but they're kind of like that dog that loves chasing cars. And they would have no idea what to do with the car if they actually caught it. So, here's where we are. The Israelites don't know what comes next. And that's when God speaks. That's when God speaks to Moses and gives them these commandments and tells him about himself. We talked about the first commandment, how there are no other gods above our God. And we talked about what that shows us about God, that God speaks, that God redeems, that God sets apart, that God is better than all the other gods out there. And he's the only one worthy of worship because none of those other gods can do what God does. So now that we're done with the first commandment, it seems to make sense that we would go to the second commandment. Seems pretty simple. Probably the least controversial part of this sermon. But here's the thing. There's even debate about that. 
If you look at the first commandment and the second commandment, there are some traditions that combine these and they say this is the first one. This all goes together. This is one commandment. And then they split up the 10th commandment into two different. So that way you still have 10 because nine commandments that just doesn't have the same appeal that the 10 commandments does. But we're going to look at this as the second commandment, a commandment separate from the one that we talked about last week. Now, that being said, there are some definite commonalities with these two commandments. They have a lot in common, but there is one difference, and that seems to be this. The first commandment is addressing more the question of who is it that we worship? And this commandment seems to be hitting on how we are called to worship him as God's people, as people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, people who have been set apart by God's grace and through Christ as well. And how we are to worship the God who is better than all the other gods, whether they are gods that are created by human hands or whether they're gods that our society seems to put above all else. So that's where we are today. We're in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. If you have a Bible, feel, with, feel free to turn to that passage. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from underneath our chairs. Those are there for you to use. If you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. So we're in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. But before we start reading, let's pray, and then we'll actually get into the passage itself. So if you would, please pray with me. Father, we are grateful that... You reveal yourself to us through your word. That in and of itself is an incredible act of grace that we don't deserve, that you make yourself known to us. And God, I pray that we won't take that for granted. Every time we open up your word, we learn a little bit more about you. And I pray that we'll do that today. I pray that you'll speak to us. I pray that you'll encourage us, convict us, do whatever it is that your word needs to do in our lives this morning. But God, we also thank you for the fact that you reveal yourself not just through the pages of Scripture, but you reveal yourself through what Jesus did for us. And God, I pray that as we look for you in the world around us, as we try to find you, as so many people wonder where God is and what God is doing and who we should worship and how we should worship, I pray that our eyes will be turned to your son Jesus, because that answers all the questions that we might have. So God, speak to us this morning, reveal yourself to us as you do each and every week, and we thank you for that. We love you, we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. All right, Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Stop right there. The second commandment makes it very clear. It's all about images. And God is making it clear that he is not to be made in the image of something that a person can create. All the other gods of the day, they were images. There were statues. There were inscriptions. There were physical idols that people fashioned with their hands. And God is saying, don't make those images because those are not your gods. I am your God. But then God goes even farther, and he seems to say that not only are you to no longer make those images of those gods, but don't try and make an image of me either. Don't try and replicate me, because the thing is that you can't 
replicate me. And as well-intentioned as you might be, you Israelite woodworker, trying to make an image of me, don't do it. Maybe you do have the best of intentions. You see the other gods and you say, you know, our God, we don't have a statue for him. And he deserves it because he's way better than those gods are. So I'm going to make a statue for him and it's going to be bigger than those idols. It's going to be more ornate than those idols. It's going to be more detailed than those idols because God is better than they are. But God stops that idea in its tracks and says, you know what? Let's just nip it in the bud. Don't make any images of them and don't make any images of me. But here's the thing. We as humans, if you're anything like me at least, we like making things. I, now that I'm out of grad school, I've kind of been already hitting this crisis of, okay, okay, well, what am I going to do with all my time now? What's my hobby going to be? Because school kind of was my hobby, as horrible as that sounds. So what am I going to do now? Well, I went to Hobby Lobby yesterday, and I bought a $15 kit for beginner's whittling. Because I think it's kind of cool. I think it's kind of cool how people can just take a block of wood and take a knife and make stuff out of it. I have no idea if this hobby's going to stick. I have no idea if I'm going to be any good at it, but it costs 15 bucks, so I figured, hey, why not give it a shot? Because I like making things. And long term, I'd really like to learn how to make bigger stuff, like tables and chairs and shelves and other stuff like that. I think it's really neat. And probably all of us, in some way, we like that satisfaction. We make something with our own hands, we work really hard on it, we fail and then we try again and we finally complete complete that project and we take great pride in it. We like showing it off and telling people that, yeah, I didn't buy this in a store, I made it myself in my garage. We like making things. And there's nothing inherently wrong about making things. God gives us skills. God gives us abilities. God gives us creativity that we might make things that honor him and glorify him. That's all well and good. But God is saying, don't try to make an image of me because you can't replicate me, no matter how well-intentioned you might be. But not only do we like making things, we're very much visual people. We like images. We often say things like, you know, you just have to see it to believe it. When we're talking about something good, we say, you know, I can't just sit here and tell you about my vacation I took and how white the sand was and how clear the water was. You just have to go there and see it for yourself because seeing is believing. We call Missouri the show me state, although I have no idea why they would call it that. I would love it if someone would show me why in the world you'd want to be a Cardinals fan, but they call it the show me state. So when we're in middle school, Our friends will often tell us that, yeah, I have this girlfriend and she's a model, but she lives really, really far away. And so what do we say? We say, well, let's see a picture. Let's see if you actually have this girlfriend. And then our friend says, well, I mean, I don't have a picture of her. I mean, it's kind of hard to mail pictures from that far away, but she's real. I promise if you could just see her, you would know that she was real. We like images and we're not the only ones. Some of Paul's contemporaries liked images, too. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 21. We're going to look through the second, first half of verse 25, starting in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for 
images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So Paul runs into these people. And they're people that really should know better because God has revealed himself to them in some general ways. You can look at creation, you can see a little bit about God, and yet these people deliberately and intentionally seem to suppress the truth about God. They seem to just reject what they know about God or what they should know about God, and instead they choose to worship other things. And Paul's language seems pretty harsh As he's addressing these people, he says that those people are futile in their thinking. They have darkened and foolish hearts. They have become fools. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. Not exactly the most flattering words that Paul uses. But Paul also seems to indicate that when you worship these images of mortal man or creatures or animals or birds, it makes you a little bit less human. It has this dehumanizing effect. The point is you worship these things, you all of a sudden find yourselves living with these primal urges and giving into these primal urges that are completely dishonoring to you and dishonoring to your body. You become like what you worship. And the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he isn't like those images. We talked about that last week. He is different than they are. And yet trying to make an image of God puts him on the same playing field as them. Now, you may have noticed when I came up here, this is Mr. Potato Head. This is Mr. Potato Head wearing a red uniform. And he sits in my office and watches me as I work. But we're going to learn a few things about Mr. Potato Head and how little God has in common with him. And how little God has in common with these images. Now, these images that the people in Romans are seeming to worship, these images that the Israelites, they might be tempted to worship, they're made by human hands. So is Mr. Potato Head. But here's the thing. God wasn't made by human hands. He has always existed. He has always been. There's never been a point where God hasn't been there. He wasn't created by anybody. He just is. But these images, they were created. There was a point in time where they didn't exist. And it took someone using their hands to make these gods exist, to make these idols exist. And God's not like that. Images are finite, and God isn't. If Mr. Potato Head is over there, he can't be in my office too. He can't be in the lobby. He can't be in the Kid City classrooms. He is finite. He is limited by space. He's limited by time. And yet God isn't. God can't be contained by a finite image of wood or stone or gold or silver or plastic. He can't be contained by those things because he is infinite. He's not finite. And then another thing, images, they can be controlled. I can pick up Mr. Potato Head. I can move him. I can decide if he's going to lose his hat or not. I can control him. But we can't control God. We often try. We often think that maybe we can find some way to control him. And yet the truth is, 
that we can't control God, as uncomfortable as that might make us at times. Now, the biggest reason that these images are a problem, the biggest reason that God would set this so clear in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, the reason why Paul would use such harsh language against these images of other gods, or if you tried to make an image of the one true God, the thing is, and what it all comes back to, is that images cheapen God. They don't do God justice because he can't be contained by them. And they have nothing in common. They're created, he's not. They're finite, he's not. They can be controlled, he can't be. Images don't do God justice. Look at Acts chapter 17. This isn't the first time in the book of Romans that Paul would run into people who like images, who worship these images. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Jump forward to verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul goes to these people of Athens, and he sees that they are a very religious people. They're asking some good questions. They were known for being very intelligent people, people trying to find the truth, whether it was through philosophy or religion or something. They want to know about God. And God says, you know what? Paul says, you know what? That's great that you want to know about God. You're asking some good questions. I'm glad that you're looking for God, but you're not going to find him where you're looking. You're not going to find him in your gold or your silver or your stones. You're not going to find him in your statues and your inscriptions. You're not going to find him in your beautiful temples, as impressive as they might be. And you're not going to find him in the leaders that you sometimes make out to be a God. You're not going to find God in those places. Because again, those things, they don't do God justice. They will fade. The gold, the silver, the stones... They'll corrode over time in one way or another. Your statues, they'll start to crack. An arm will fall off. They won't last forever. The inscriptions, the wind will come, the rain will come, and they'll beat against that inscription, and before long, you won't be able to read it anymore because it'll be so worn down. Your temples, eventually the foundation will sink. A column will need to be replaced you can't find God in these places. Those leaders that you kind of have your fingers crossed and you hope that maybe they're God, they can be a being that you worship, they'll die. All of these things will fade because they don't do God justice. And if we try to contain God in these images, we end up cheapening God in the end. So... 
I guess the question comes up, are we guilty of making images? Again, this is one of those commandments where we hear it today and we think, you know, I just can't really imagine that this applies to me today. I don't have a statue in my house that I worship. I don't have a wooden god sitting on my mantle that I pray to or offer sacrifices to. I really don't see how this could be relevant to me. But here's the thing. Paul said in that Acts chapter 17 passage that the images that we create, they may not be limited to physical things that we make with our hands. He also said things in your imagination. How often in our heads do we create these false images of God, these false perceptions of God? Maybe we create this God of consumerism where God is a good I worship God because he has something to offer me. He offers me fulfillment as a Christian the same way that exercise offers fulfillment to an athlete or the same way that getting a couple good laughs offers fulfillment to a comedian. We view God as a good, and it's all about us. What can God do for me today? How can God make my life better? How can God make my life easier? How can God make my pocketbook a little bit more robust? We treat God like he's nothing but a good to be consumed by us. Because those are the images that we are often guilty of creating in our minds. Some of us might be guilty of creating this image of God that goes along with legalism. That God is just a rule maker who really has no love for his people or for anything really. And he just rules with an iron fist. That is a false perception of God that we are sometimes tempted to create in our minds. Or maybe there's the other extreme, the God of antinomianism, which is a fancy way of saying being against the law. It's the idea that God is nothing more than a pushover and God could not care less how it is that I portray him with my life, how it is that I live, the way that my life reflects him. All these perceptions that we create, they're false from one extreme to another. And the problem with these images, even though they're not made by your hands, even though they're not statues or inscriptions or temples or stones, these images, they cheapen God too. And that has a long-term impact. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. Lost my page. Let me turn back there. Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. We read in that passage, continuing where we left off. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There is a long-term impact when God is reduced to a cheapened image. It impacts those who come after us because God is jealous for us. He's jealous like a good spouse is jealous for his husband or his wife that leaves him. And he wants him back. She wants him back. And so they are jealous for that person. That's the kind of jealousy that God has for his people. The ones he redeemed, the one that he sets apart, that jealousy exists. And the way that we worship God, it will affect our kids. Look at 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, just a really small example of this happening. We run into King Jeroboam, one of the worst kings that 
ever existed in the history of God's people. We read in verse 28, So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So Jeroboam, bad king, has some political interests. He decides that he's going to create gods. He's going to create golden calves, much like happened in the book of Exodus. He creates these gods, and the people of Israel, sure enough, God's people, they worship them. And there is a long-term impact of Jeroboam. One of Jeroboam's descendants was Ahab, who might be the only king who was worse than he was. And all of this sin that exists in God's people, all of this idolatry that is taking root through people like Jeroboam, it has a major impact. Exile happens generations later. It's almost like God's people return to Egypt in a way. They're back under oppression. They're back under slavery. And it all comes back to this sin of worshiping images, of being idolaters. And God does not take kindly to it. So this morning, much like we did last week, I'm calling us to proclaim something that most of us have probably already proclaimed. But we re-proclaim it as followers of Christ, as people of God. We commit to worshiping the one true God. Not an image of him that we create with our hands, not an image of him that we create in our minds that neatly fits with our agendas, that neatly fits with our priorities and our goals. We worship him for who he truly is, not this perception that we like to make up. And if we want to worship this God for who he truly is, we look to the pages of Scripture. We look to the cross because those are the ways that God reveals himself to us. Look at that Acts 17 passage, last couple verses before we're done. Verses 30 and 31 of Acts 17. Paul writes, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, this comes back to Jesus. Paul is saying to these people in Athens, stop looking at your idols, stop looking at your statues if you want to see God. Instead, look to Christ, because that's where you see God. Look to the cross, that's where you see God. These images that you look for, they don't do him justice, because they're finite, because they can be controlled, because they're made by human hands. Jesus could not be controlled even by death. He rose from the grave, and he offers us forgiveness, and he offers us redemption. And so if we're looking for God, that's where we look. We look to the pages of Scripture. We look to the cross, because that's where God truly shows himself to us. And any other image, any other place that we look, those things will fade. Those things won't last, and they won't do God justice. So let's look to the only image of God that is truly worth worshiping, and that's his son Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this time that we have together. We're grateful that 
you have revealed yourself to us, that you have made yourself known to us through your son, Jesus. And God, we don't have to look anywhere else to find you. We look at him. And I pray that we will resist that temptation to try and contain you and try and create these ideas, these images of you that are a little bit more manageable for us, that fit better into our preconceived notions about who you should be or what you should do or how we should worship you. I pray that we'll see you for who you truly are. God, we love you so much, and we are not worthy of being here. We're not worthy of being your people, and yet you set us apart anyway. You redeem us anyway. And I pray that throughout this sermon series that we'll be reminded of that. That we won't worship false images of you, no matter where they come from. I pray that we'll be dedicated to you and to you alone, that we'll have no other gods before you. And I pray that as we read these Ten Commandments, we'll get to know you better. I pray you'll have mercy on us when we fall short, when we are tempted to worship those images. And God, thank you for your grace, that you welcome us back, even though we never deserve to be in your family in the first place. God, we love you, we praise you, we honor you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Again, maybe you haven't placed your faith in Christ. Maybe you've been looking for God in other places. And let me tell you, you won't find him in those other places. So I ask you, turn to Christ this morning. Place your faith in him. We'll have elders standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk to you, happy to pray with you. Maybe you are a Christian and you just have something that is really weighing on you that really needs to be prayed about. Maybe something that needs to be confessed to another believer. Feel free to talk to them about that too. They're there for you. They want to have those conversations with you. So take advantage of that.